Oh. Guys, now listen. It's feeling a little warm and cozy in here tonight, okay? It's possible that you might get so comfortable that you just mosey on, whoa, mosey on into a little cat nap. But I say don't do that. I'm going to invite you to do our secret tactic, the same one we did yesterday. Take your hands, go like this, grab your eyeballs, and say, I'm awake. I'm awake. <laughs> so good. You're awake for now. All right, well, hey, if you remember, after our friends Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had all been taken captive, marched 500 miles into scary Babylon, this impenetrable fortress, capital city place, and they've had their names changed. Remember, like we've been seeing in the dramas in the morning to like, I don't know, seaweed and driftwood and fish food and whatever their names are, right? We've also seen them take their Harry Potter classes. They've been forced to learn witchcraft and all the customs of this occult culture. But we remember that they drew the line at eating food probably sacrificed to pagan idols because they just understood from God's word that that was going to cause them to disobey him and they were unwilling to compromise. They were unwilling to disobey God. Remember, we said that they didn't cave in, but they also didn't fight. They chose an awesome solution in the middle that was godly resolve. They remembered to fear God and not man, and they hid his word in their heart. To be filled up with God's word, to combat all the trash literally in the drama and in this culture that's being thrown at them. And they gave us a perfect picture of what it means to be a resilient Christian in a godless culture. But I want to show you what happened to them next. There's a little piece that kind of ends that chunk of our story. This is Daniel chapter 1, verse, I'm going to start at verse 15. Remember they said they were polite, they were tactful, they cared about their oppressors. And they're like, hey, listen, just, can we have permission to eat just vegetables and drink water? Can we, what if we just give us a test for 10 days, see how we turn out? So when you get to Daniel chapter 1, verse 15, you know what to do. When you get there, go, yay, yay. Are you guys really there? Ah, oh, you're so good. Okay. It says, at the end of 10 days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and wine. Verse 17, it says, to these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. And Daniel could understand various visions and dreams of all kinds. At the end of the time set by a king to bring them in, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and he found none equal to Daniel. Remember, these are their original birth names, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's service. And in every matter of wisdom, understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his own kingdom. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. And so they obeyed God when it was a little bit scary, and he took care of them, and the outcome in this situation was awesome for them. They got these sweet jobs, they got honored, God gave them favor with the bad guys, and he's given them like genius brains. I wonder if like their heads got like literally a little bit bigger, you know? Like, like, they, like you know how a newborn baby, when they start to walk, and they're like, whoa, I don't know. 
but in some supernatural way, they're 10 times better than all the rest of these magic guys. This is awesome. And before we jump into chapter two, and see the next thing that happens in these guys' lives that we watched in the drama this morning, I just want to invite you to do the same thing that we do each time we get together. Would you just take five seconds? And if you believe there's even a shred of possibility that the God of the universe tonight has something he wants to say to you, to show you, to stretch you in a little bit, would you just take five seconds and say, God, if that's true, if you have something specifically for me, I'm open to it, I'm ready, and I'm willing to listen. Go ahead and pray. God, we love you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the way that you love and lead us. We give you our time tonight. In Christ's name. Everybody said? Amen. Amen. All right, well, do you remember vividly the drama this morning? Oh, it was so good. Okay, we kind of opened the scene with, with King Nez, Nebuchadnezzar, right? He had a dream. Well, that's from Daniel chapter 2, verse 1. And it says, in the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His mind was troubled, and he could not sleep. That means... These aren't just dreams. What are these? These are nightmares. Have you ever had a nightmare? Yeah, yeah guys, I, my little boys, they, they share a room and they sleep in bunk beds, and I'll be like out in the living room after bedtime, and I can tell from another room when they're having night nightmares because they make noises. They're like, whoa, oh, 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 but they're fully asleep. It's awesome. Uh, I am actually, I'm a sleepwalker, so when I have nightmares, there is movement in my house. Are there any sleepwalkers in here? Really? Oh, no, guys, we're a bunch of weirdos. <laughs> well, listen, one time, I was spraying poison on black widows. It was the middle of the day, and in the eaves of our house, there were not just black widows, but they were baby black widows and eggs of black widows that were about to hatch. And we, my wife and I were so creeped out that I went and bought one of those like pump sprayers and I'm like, I'm going to end this. And so I'm spraying all the eaves and I'm like, I'm a good husband. This is, I'm, we're like kind of newlyweds early on in marriage. And I'm like, yes. But then the craziest thing happened. As the spiders were dying, they started losing control of their spinnerets. And they just started slowly descending by the hundreds. Black widows, you guys, from the eaves of my house, just, oh, it was great. And then I went and sprayed that little, like, the electricity meter on the side of my house just for good measure. I didn't know if anything was in there. And the second I sprayed it, all these spiders went, like, crawling out of it. And I was like, ooh, that was gross. It made my skin crawl, but I'm fine. I'm a husband. I'm brave. I just proved it. And we went throughout the rest of our day, and I went to bed. But do you know what happened that night? I had a nightmare. And while I'm laying in the bed, all of a sudden, I see this giant spider, like wider than I can reach my arms. And I can see it's like face fangs, you know, and it's like slowly descending on me. And I start sinking into the bed like, oh, oh, and I like smear myself off the bed like, oh my gosh, that thing could bite off my head. And I, and in real life, I'm like in my pajamas, crawling along the side of the wall, trying to get away from the spider that is in the middle of my room. My wife and I have been married for less than three weeks. She wakes up and she sees her husband slithering along the wall and she's like, oh, honey. <laughs> and at that moment I woke up and I was like, she's like, what are you doing? And I was like, oh, nothing. But the shadow of the ceiling fan, that's what I thought was a giant spider. You know what I mean? For me, 
If my nightmare was just because I saw a bunch of scary spiders during the day, for Nebuchadnezzar, his nightmare, his dream that he can't get out of his head is God trying to get his attention. His nightmare actually means something, and it freaks him out. And so as we saw in the drama this morning, I'm just going to paraphrase this next part. Basically, King Nebuchadnezzar has had, as we've been reading the context of Scripture, this huge group of people in training in this pro, this like magician school for three years to learn how to do all this stuff. So he's like, I got all these guys sitting around. I've been feeding them. I've been teaching them. I've been training them. Let's put them to work. Hey, you guys, I had a dream last night, and I want you to tell me what it means. And they're like, oh, yeah, yeah, you got it. Just tell us, tell us what it is. And he's like, oh, no, no, no. If you're really magic-y, you can tell me what the dream is first, and then you can tell me what it means. And they're like, what? Because he's like, listen, I'm not putting you through three years of school just to get a bunch of fakers who are going to manipulate situations and tell me what they think I want to hear and all that. I want to know that you can really do magic stuff. Tell me what my dream is and tell me what it means. And they're like, king, no man can do that. And the king freaks out. Like The Bible says that he gets furious. Like If there's a noise to this, it's like, you know, like where the blood vessels start coming out the side. And he's like, that's it. You're all going to die. And he talks about executing them into pieces. And you guys, I looked it up in nerd history stuff. There are some crazy ways that the ancient Babylonians used to execute people into pieces. Like, listen, these stories we're reading tonight are very familiar. But they're probably familiar from Sunday school. My intention with you is to give you maybe not the G version, but the PG version. Because you need to view these with fresh eyes. Is that okay? Guys, one of the ways the Babylonians used to do this to people, I mean, all these ways would have been brutal. It's execution. But one of them was they would take four trees and they would bend them down and they would tie the tips of the trees all together with one rope. And then they would take this person and they would tie one limb to each top of the tree. And then when the king said, go, they would cut that bottom rope and each limb would go, what? Like, remember, I told you, King Nebuchadnezzar doesn't just look scary. This is, this is a brutal, wicked, terrible king of this kingdom. And that's not even all. I've got more crazy stuff to tell you about this guy tomorrow. But guys, he was scary. This idea was brutal. This would have caused fear for all of these people that he's referencing, which would have included our guys. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they're like, what? The word gets to them that they're all about to be executed. So Daniel's like, oh, man. Oh, man, this is scary. What are we going to do? And, and this is kind of a side note to our point, but it's also kind of not. Guys, I don't know if you've caught on, but the primary thing that we are interested in this week as we study the book of Daniel is we, we're just taking notes on what does it take to be a resilient Christian in a hostile, godless world. And one of those things that we're going to see is Daniel's response to this thing that should cause fear and tremors throughout this whole group of people. This is what happens. Verse 17 says, Then Daniel returned to his house and explained the matter to his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. He urged them to plead for mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that he and his friends might not be executed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. And I don't want to just simply tell you, resilient Christians, pray. 
I want to go a little bit further because I think that you guys can. I want to challenge you and I want to invite you to just maybe think about your life and the depth of your relationships right now. One of the marks of a resilient Christian isn't just that they pray, but is that they have people that they can actually pray transparently with, that they can pray vulnerably with, that in the crisis of their life, they can go out to them and go, guys, this is going on in my life. I'm scared or I'm worried or I, I'm, I don't know what, I'm stressed would you pray with me for this? And I want to be clear, what I'm not talking about is that you go to youth group, you sit in a group with an adult who says, who has prayer requests, and then you pray. Now that's fantastic, but that's more a reflection of the adult investing in you spiritual maturity than your own. Do you get what I'm saying? I don't care if you're a new sixth grader, if you're an outgoing eighth grader. Guys, these people were max 17 years old. If you're going to be a resilient Christian, you have to start thinking in your head even now, who are my people? Maybe I don't know them well enough to do this yet, but who are the people that when crisis hits, I will go, would you pray with me? But the other thing I want to give you in, in this little prayer side note is that they don't just pray, <laughs> release it out into the air and go, all right, let's do something else and completely forget. Isn't that what we do? Have you ever done that? Because I have found old prayer journals and I do not journal. So these are few and far between. And I'll be like, oh, wow, I prayed that. And then I never paid attention to what happened. That's not what we're supposed to do. But what we're told next is that in verse 19, that in the middle of the night, God reveals the mystery of, of Nebuchadnezzar's dream to Daniel. He answers their prayer. Daniel's going to be able to bring this dream to the king. No one has to get executed. This is amazing. And before Daniel just moves on with his life, in verse 23, he's, he prays. It's like this poetic stanza he's celebrating. He says, I thank and praise you, O God of my fathers. Because another thing in relation to prayer that a resilient Christian does is they cultivate a heart of gratitude towards God. They stop and they remember, God, I'm thankful for this in my life. God, thank you for these friends. God, thank you for the way my parents. God, thank you for this camp. And as that gratitude wells up, that accurate, real, godly gratitude, you know what it does? Same thing that happens when we hide God's word in our heart. It begins to push against all that wicked social pressure that is not godly and fill us up with something else. A resilient Christian has people they can transparently pray with and cultivates a heart of gratitude. All right, can we keep going? Okay. So anyway, Daniel showed, Daniel's like, oh, I got it. I know. God gave me the dream. I'm ready. And I picture him just running, you know, like this. He's probably got a camel back on and he's drinking it. We've got a little bit of electrolytes in there. He gets to the king like a cartoon skit. And he's like, king, we got what you need. And the, and the king's like, can you interpret my dream? This is 26, verse 27. And I love what Daniel says. He says, no. <laughs> That's pretty brave. Everybody's about to die, and you're going to kind of start with semantics. Well, no, technically, I can't. But this, this is not nerd semantics. This is fantastic. He says, no wise man, enchanter, magician, or diviner can explain to the king the mystery he has asked about, but... There is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And he will go on to explain the dream. But the thing I want to show you is a resilient Christian doesn't live to make his name great. He's not seeking out his own glory. Daniel could have taken this moment and go, ha, I solved the problem. Yep, I got it, King me. My name is whatever his full name is, right? Like Daniel Joseph Johnson. I don't know, right? Like me, give me the credit. As a resilient Christian, that's not what he does. He knows the, the glory doesn't go to him. The glory goes to God. He's a glory bringer to God. 
not to himself. This is an important attribute of a resilient Christian, you guys. This is very nerdy, but the Westminster Shorter Catechism of Faith says that the chief end of man or the main function, purpose, goal of us is to worship God and enjoy him forever. That doesn't just mean that we're supposed to give God the glory. It means that by design, we are most fulfilled when we give him the glory, even in pressure, even in difficult circumstances. And I love that. So he, com- he conveys the dream. He's like, oh, king, I can read your mail. I know exactly what was happening in that little wicked king brain in yours. You had a dream about this big statue, and the head was gold, and the arms were silver, and the body was bronze, and the feet were clay. And then this rock came out of nowhere, and it crushed the whole statue. And then the statue turned into dust, and the dust blew away, and there's nothing left. And then the g- that rock turned into a giant mountain, and it grew. And the king's like, that's incredible. How'd you do that? That was exactly what he dreamed. And then Daniel blows his mind even more. And he's like, hey, I can tell you what it means because God told me, you know what your dream means? You're the head of gold. You're like this big deal king of kings. You're the, you're the most prolific nation ever right now. And what's going to come after you is a slightly weaker kingdom and then a slightly weaker kingdom. And then all these kingdoms of man that we're so impressed with, all these people doing things successfully, all of that's going to be abolished. And the rock that will grow into a mountain, that is the kingdom of my God that will last forever. And Nebuchadnezzar's like, That's amazing. You solved the riddle. Okay, well, now it's time for some perks, little buddy. And he promotes him, and he lavishes gifts on him. And then he even lets Daniel, like, promote his friends, and they're all like, woo! Again, it goes amazingly for these guys. It's pretty cool. And in Daniel chapter 3, verse 1, we start to get in to the meat of what we're talking about tonight. To the sketchy stuff, okay? Daniel chapter 3, verse 1 through 3, we see that famous story, Daniel in the fiery furnace. Have you heard this story? If you've heard this story, say, oh. <laughs> yeah, but listen, you listen to me. We're not doing that, okay? We're going to look at the story with fresh eyes because I bet the way that you learned it as a second grader is different than the depth that exists in the text today. Everybody say, fresh eyes. You promise? Okay, okay, here we go. Well, after the king lavishes gifts on Daniel and his crew, puts them in a high position, they all get promotions, and they're like, ha-ha, this is the best. Sometime later, this king doesn't just dream a statue, he makes his own statue. And we're told that it's, this is, this is a paraphrase of chapter 3, verse 1 through 3, we're told that it's 90 feet tall. That it's nine feet wide. That's like one and a half of me, of my arms wide. And the whole thing's made out of gold. Guys, I don't know how much gold that is, but this thing's worth like a bajillion dollars. This is crazy. And then I love the way that this is written because it's kind of weird. It's like Daniel's writing an essay and he's, he, <laughs> he doesn't have enough words in there and he has to add words. Listen to this. It says, he then summoned... The satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image he set up. But then he does it again. So, the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other officials assembled for the dedication. I don't know why that's in there, but I love it. 
The point is, these are all the bosses. These are all the guys that are the, the heads of these different departments that work for King Nebuchadnezzar. He's sending all the bosses out to grab all the people because every single person in the kingdom is about to be commanded to worship this big, tall, golden statue thing. And in verse 4, we get the orders. It says, Then the herald loudly proclaimed, This is what you are commanded to do, O peoples, nations and men of every language, as soon as you hear the sound, uh-oh, he's filling words again, of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and all of the music, you must fall down and worship the image of, God, of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. Pop quiz, what instruments were in there in this giant orchestra? Oh, I did hear a flute. I did. That was in there. But guys, this... This soundtrack is probably weird. It's a pagan culture worshiping this weird giant golden thing. I picture like tribal drums. It's like, oh, 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 oh. there's definitely a flute. I don't know. It's like this. It like speeds up and gets louder. Who knows? But they're like. <laughs> They're like working themselves into a tizzy. Everyone must bow to this big gold statue thing. What's King Nebuchadnezzar doing? This is nothing new. He wants them to compromise whatever loyalty they hold, wherever their allegiances are. If they're to the one true living God, you abandon those now. And you follow me. You worship what we worship. He's putting them in this dilemma again. And... <laughs> it gets crazy because though you may know the outcome of the story, look at the minutia of the things that are going on in here, okay? From verse 7 to 14, we see that every single person immediately hits the floor. They just lay down and they bow down and they do exactly what the king says to do, just like we saw last night. Everybody caves. They give in to the pressure. They're scared they're going to stick out. I don't want to get in trouble. I don't want to feel uncomfortable or weird. This isn't worth it. I, don't, I, haven't, I haven't resolved ahead of time of who I'm going to be or what I believe or what my actions are. And everybody caves. Except who? Our four. That's right. Except these four. And in verse 7 through 14, we see that there are certain people who are probably jealous of these four's high positions. And they tattletale. They're like, oh, king. You know how you said that everybody, when you hear all that music, the lyre and the zither and the flute and the whenever that happens, everybody's got to hit the ground and worship your statue? Well, four people that you have raised up who are high up in your kingdom, they're not doing that. And the king's like, uh, what? They're disobeying me? And he gets furious. And he, makes, he, he shows up to them, and he gives them one last chance. In verse 15, Daniel chapter 3 Verse 15, he says, Now, now when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and all kind of music, if you're ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? And guys, this next chunk of verses, I don't know if you've seen it in your booklets or on different things, this is our theme passage for the entire week. So if you have your Bibles and you take notes in them, this would be one to underline or highlight. This was their response. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, 
Oh, Nebuchadnezzar. <laughs> I love this. We don't need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we're thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it, and he will rescue us from your hand, O king. But even if he does not, we want you to know, O king, sounds very mocking to me, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you have set up. Holy cow, there's some bravery here. This is a little bit crazy. And in the next few verses, what we see is if Nebuchadnezzar was furious before when he issued that execution decree, he is about to, he's like popping blood vessels in his eyes. Like this, the cartoon steam coming out of his ears, you know what I mean? And he picks his strongest guards, the Bible says, which that would be cool to see. I wonder if it's just like these giant guys that can't bend their limbs all the way because there's just so much muscles and they make this sound, you know? And he sends them to go bind and pick up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And then when they get to this furnace, he tells them to crank the heat. How many times hotter? Seven times hotter. Guys, <laughs> I'll be on my porch sometimes, and all I'm doing is lighting our little like propane outdoor fire pit thing. You know what I mean? I don't know how hot that thing gets. Not very hot. And the flame never gets higher than this, but so I stand back like this. Like, with my stick lighter, and if it lights too late and goes, it like burns the little hairs on my knuckles, and I go, ah, and the smell is gross. This is seven times hotter than normal. This would have been insane. So insane in the king's rage, seven times hotter that these guys who can't bend their limbs, limbs all the way because they're so buff, who are marching Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to their certain doom, they throw them in, and it gets so hot that these guys burn to death. Did you know that? Yes. <laughs> Some of you guys are like, oh, yeah, I watch VeggieTales. <laughs> I'm on to you. <laughs> oh. <laughs> it's, it's depicted in verse 22. Let's just read it. Verse 22 says, the king's command was so urgent and the furnace so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. I cannot imagine what it would have been like to be 15, 16, 17, tied up by the strongest guards in the nation, picked up like a toothpick and thrown into a giant furnace. Like, think about what their perspective was. As they're midair, going in fuego into a pizza oven, you know what I mean? They're watching as these giant guards, the hair is singeing off their arms. Their eyebrows are completely singeing off. And then the eyeballs in their heads are melting out of their head. Like, this is insane. This would have been traumatic. This would have scarred them. This isn't just a cool, this is not a cool little kid's story. This is like, What? And although you know what happens next, let's read it. Verse 24. It says, Then King Nebuchadnezzar leapt to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, Were there three men in there that we tied up and threw into the fire? They replied, Certainly, O king. He said, Look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Who's that fourth person? Jesus. Well, we don't know. It could be Daniel. Maybe he got lonely and he's like, Guys, wait up. I'm coming in too. I'm just kidding. You're right. Yes. 
It was, J- it was God. Many people believe this was an Old Testament interaction with Jesus, who's the personification of God in the flesh. God shows up in their moment of crisis to be in the fire with them. That's significant. We're going to spend some time unpacking that tonight. Nebuchadnezzar is completely freaked out. Verse 26, he then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High. That's probably how he talks now because he's so excited, you know. Come out here. (laughs) So they came out of the fire and everybody crowded around them. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair of their head singed. Their robes were not scorched and there was no smell of fire on them. Holy moly. Nebuchadnezzar goes into this big fanfare. He's like, your God is the most powerful God that exists. That was insane. You guys are cool. I'm going to promote you again. And you know what happens? Everything goes well for them again. And what I want to talk about tonight is a potential trap that you and I can fall into. And I'm not making this up. My guess is there's probably a third of you in this room that though you may not be able to articulate, the theology that you would apply to this verse can really mess you up to the degree that it causes you to walk away and abandon your faith and your relationship with God entirely. I have had students in my youth group view this wrong, do this wrong, and it breaks my heart because to this day they're no longer walking with God. And all I can do is pray for them. Here's what I mean. I want to give you a couple things. This is going to be kind of our filter. Think about the trajectory of their life that we've just walked through. If we're not careful, we could look at it and go, oh, there's a formula to this Christianity thing. I remember, right, just in the things we talked about today, (laughs) they obeyed God when it was scary, they ate the supernatural veggies, and because they obeyed God when it was scary, everything went great. They got favor, they got smarter, they got ten times better, and they got sweet jobs. So obey God when it's scary, and life will be awesome. And then move on, right, with that dream that he had and they had to interpret. What did they do? They prayed in tough times. If you're not careful, your theology could become, oh, well, what this means is if you pray in tough times, God's going to give you this supernatural ability to solve problems, interpret dreams. He's going to give you more sweet jobs. He's going to lavish gifts on you. You're going to be able to promote all your friends, and your life's going to be awesome and easy again. And then in the furnace, what happens? They stand firm for God. You can draw these correlations that don't exist. If I stand firm for God, then what's he going to (laughs) do? He's going to give me fireproof skin. He's going to make me a dragon. I don't know. We're going to get promoted again with all our friends. It's going to be a big party, and we're going to live happily ever after. That would be a wrong way to understand what we just read. But many people view their life. Guys, there are preachers who preach this. If you just do this for God, he will give you wealth and prosperity and grow your muscles. I don't know, give you a new car. You know what I mean? That is not what God is trying to convey to us in this passage. You could trick yourself into thinking the formula is do something good for God and he will give you exactly what you tell him to give you on the other side. But there is no formula. Guys, I had a student. uh, I was a high school pastor. He was probably a ninth grader. I loved this kid. He didn't have a dad. His mom was awesome, but he just came from a hard background. And so he had some needs. He had some rough edges. And I was just so excited that he finally started coming to youth group. At first, it was like once every seven weeks. And he, he would like cussing. He didn't know he was supposed to. We, he couldn't cuss, right? He was doing all these bragging about sketchy things. And we were like, whoa. And he slowly started 
to grow into the image of Christ like we talk about, right? He, he started to put those things off. He started to represent the things that the Bible started talking about. And we were like, oh my gosh, I think God's moving in his life. This is awesome. Cameron was like a surfer guy. He had like the long bleach blonde hair, you know, where he'd like whip it every once in a while like Zac Efron. <laughs> and he like talked slow, like he'd be like, whoa. And that meant like seven different things. He'd be like, Cameron, what are you doing today? <laughs> yeah, bro, you know. But I love this guy. But I, I, he, at the moment that he left the church, this was the conversation we had. He said, I made a commitment to God that I'm going to stop cussing. I'm going to go to youth group every week. I'm going to read my Bible. I'm going to try really hard to be good. I'm going to do my best. And then I'm going to pray really hard every day for the, God, for the things that I want. God, look at me. I'm honoring you. I'm doing all the things you say. I really would love a sweet summer job. Just a good summer job so I can save up and get a car and drive myself around. God, I'm going to do my absolute best. Look, I'm doing all these things you're telling me to do. Now I'm going to pray really hard. Do you know what I want? I, there's this specific girl that I like. I really want you to make her like me back so that we can be boyfriend and girl. Like, for real. Do you get what I'm saying, though? He was doing the thing that I'm saying. That's, it looks like that's what this passage is saying. That's not what this passage is saying. Cameron thought he could get God to sign a contract that he never signed. And Cameron walked away from God because he didn't get what he thought God was supposed to give him. Feel the contrast here. That's not what we read in this passage. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego obeyed God in uncertainty. We know the ending of the story. You knew it before I started talking to you. They didn't know God was going to show up in the fire and rescue them. They honored and obeyed God regardless of the outcome. Guys, a resilient Christian doesn't obey God and treat him like a cosmic vending machine. God, if I obey, if I stand firm, if I pray the right way, then I expect you to push the button on the Coke machine, give me this. That's not the contract. That's not the way it's designed, right? If you actually look at the context of their lives, think about it through this lens. God is very, very, very involved in their lives. Would you agree? At every step of the way, and yet they're ripped from their homeland, which is now a war-torn, shattered place. They're made captives. They march 500 miles to scary Babylon. A guard is sent to execute them, and last minute, in the uncertainty, they find out that's not going to happen because God gives a miracle. They're asked to do impossible things that they cannot possibly do on their own. And even though God's very involved in their lives, they're still thrown into a fiery furnace and watched grown buff men melt. God was very involved in their life. Did that make their life easy? No. Guys, we're not just having the conversation that we had night one. We're developing on it. We're making it deeper. Here's what I want you to just, here's what we're going to end with. Realize, if there is no formula for us to go, I can do this, this, and this, and God will give me the easy, awesome life that I want. If that's not how reality works, and instead, our life works the same way that theirs did. God wants to and will be heavily involved in your life. But for whatever reason, he may not choose to take the difficulty out. Then what are we to do? What can we understand? I, I, I wrote this down real quick before we get into these three things we'll end with. God may not take our difficulty and pain away, but he promises to go through it with us. That's the significance of God in the fire with them. He didn't keep them from going through the fire at all. He said, there will be pain, there will be difficulty, and you know what you can expect? Not that if you do the right things, I'll make it easy, 
But if you lean in, if you depend on me in every moment, I will walk you through every step of this moment by moment. I will be with you. But in John chapter 16, verse 33, whoa, this thing almost, whoa, that was almost like magic right there. In John chapter 16, verse 33, this is how Jesus says it. He says, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. There's no formula where we can make God give us an easy life. In fact, he promises us the opposite. He promises us trouble. And I'm reading this from another note sheet that my wife wrote out for me. Aww! Her name's Megan. You can clap for her. That's good. So if this is the reality of the world, here's what I want to give you. Three things that God does in our hardship. What are right expectations of this God? What can we look forward to? How do resilient Christians live through the pain and difficulty of this world in a God-honoring, persevering way? Here's the first thing. We need to remember that in our hardship, God redeems. In our hardship, God redeems. That's a weird churchy word, but the definition of it, I, I, I don't know. I'm not making it up, but this is my words of it. Redeeming something is the special sacred ability to pull good things out of something terrible. To pull good things out of something terrible. That means that the terrible things that will happen over the course of our life, God may not be the cause of them, but he refuses to waste them. Let me say that again. The difficulties, the hardships, the heartaches, the pain that you and I have experienced and will experience this side of heaven, God may not be the cause of that pain, but in his goodness, in his redemptive nature, he refuses to waste it. Even that, feel that goodness, right? Is life hard for everybody? Yeah, now listen, you guys, I'm not patronizing you. You may not have experienced it that much yet because you get to eat red licorice and scroll through TikTok all day. I don't know. But you ask any adult in here and they're like, listen, even the bad things that don't happen, I love my kids, but my kids are a hardship. You know what I mean? I don't get to sleep at night. They whine, they poop, they cry. I love them so much, but there's always a growing pain or a teething or something. Someone broke an ankle or whatever. There is hardship that earmarks every category of this life. God draws good out of the bad. Let me give you an example that's pertinent to you that I'm not storing away for you to just apply when you're 40 years old. I, I hate that this is true, but I imagine this is probably true in your youth groups too. In our youth groups at our church, we have so many kids whose parents are divorced. And it's not just a statistic, it's broken families. It's when that news happens and that kid is devastated and they start to run through all the scenarios of like, why is this happening? God, why would you let this happen? They run through the scenarios with their parents of like, is this my fault? Did I do something? And then they go even further and they're like, is there something I can do to make this not happen? And it's terribly, terribly painful. And if you haven't experienced it, you don't know the degree and depth of that heartache. But if you have experienced it, did God want that pain to happen to you? No, but he refuses to waste your pain. Maybe the way that he redeems, that he draws good out of that terrible, terrible bad for you is that six months, a year from now, another kid in your youth group is going to find out for the first time that week that their parents are going through a divorce. And you will be the one person who is in tune and sensitive and you truly understand the depth of grief that they feel. You can truly be there for them. You can truly listen to them. You can truly love them. You can accurately pray for them. Do you see how that might be a good being drawn out of a bad? God does those things in the lives of the believers who lean in and try to live resilient lives following him. 
And while bad things, while life is difficult for everybody, feel this. When I live my life and I go through hardship and I'm not a Christian, there is no redeeming. There is no good drawn out of my bad. It's just bad, hollow, empty, difficult, bad, sad, terrible. God does things with our difficulty that are God-honoring, that are growing, that are redeeming and awesome. Here's the second thing that God chooses to do in our hardship. God refines us in the midst of our hardship. 1 Peter 1, 6-7 says this. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. He refines us. This, this may be a better, more practical verse for you. This is James chapter 1, verse 2. Listen to this. Everybody go like this. Put your listening ears on. All right. Pay close attention. This is what God does with difficulty. Consider it pure joy. That's a weird word in relation to our pain. Whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Guys, God won't waste the pain and difficulty in your life. He can use it constantly to grow you, to grow your ability to endure things, to grow your wisdom, to grow just like that example I gave with redemption, to grow your care of other people. Do you know that as a pastor, when I sit on my little perch and I just interact with each person in our church, I can literally tell the people who God has matured through difficulty because they listen different, because they care different, because they invest different. This is a real thing that God wants to produce in us for his glory and for the blessing of those around us. It's him drawing good out of the bad. And then here's the last thing. What God does in the midst of hardship is he reminds us of eternity. This is Romans chapter 8, verse 18. It says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. As when we encounter hardship, it's very difficult to go, I just want to live my life here and I don't really care about anything else. This is fun, easy, it's the best. When I encounter hardship, you know what it makes me do? It makes me long for Jesus. It makes me look forward to heaven where there's no more pain, there's no more suffering. It makes me revel in the goodness of God because what I have right now is not good and I desperately want him and that in and of itself is a good thing. God may not be the cause of our pain, but he refuses to waste it. What a good God that he would use difficulty and hardship to be a training ground to grow us into the kind of people he wants to be. So here's what this means. I say this with deep sorrow in my heart. I hope that in sitting under these words tonight, you do not become a Cameron, someone that your youth pastors are praying for and they know they can't do much more because they are shaking their fist at God in anger going, how dare you let me encounter hard things. Cameron's faith proved to not be resilient, and it crushes my heart, you guys. These leaders love you so much, and you know what they want for you? In their love for you, they want to know that five years from now, ten years from now, when life gets really hard, you remember verses like this, and you go, no, no, no. I knew to expect hardship. I'm not surprised. I knew this was coming. I knew this was part of the equation, and I know I'm supposed to lean into God in difficulty instead of shake my fists and go, this isn't what you're supposed to do. This is our last sentence. A resilient Christian expects pain and leans into God through it for redemption and refinement. 
That's what Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did. And that's what God invites us to do. Let me pray for you. God, we love you. God, I thank you for these students that (laughs) when your word brings difficult concepts that may not be light and sparkly, but God, we know that we need and we know that you give them to us for our growth as you lead and guide us. God, thank you that you move us along the way that you do. Would you get glory not just from listening to your word tonight, but from what it cultivates in our hearts in the next years and decades. God, we surrender ourselves to you in light of these principles. In Christ's name we pray. And everybody said? Amen. Amen.